I'm Casey Nash, and you're tuned into the Backyard Pet Talk with Shannon Riley Coiner podcast. Hi, hi, Casey. <laughs> it's super good to see you. Um, just so any of you who don't know, um, Casey was in Ventura working, um, training at um, our Ventura Pet Wellness Training Center for quite a while and then she moved across the country to the east coast and um so we don't get to see her anymore day to day but i asked casey to be on this podcast today because casey specializes in training service dogs and um some of you may be listening and wondering you have to have special training to train service dogs or maybe you don't know what service dogs are there is a difference between a service dog and a therapy dog, which oftentimes gets mistaken. And um, I'm going to let Casey tell you, but she has lots of education in this. Um, and it was it's definitely been her passion because you can tell by her educational um, travels that she knew this is where she wanted to be when she started training dogs. So Casey, tell us about why you got interested in um, training service dogs. Yeah, so I actually started as a volunteer when I was 13 years old. Um, I got my first uh, guide dog puppy in training when I was 13. Um, and I raised four puppies through them. At the time, I was really interested in dogs and I was learning about dogs, but I couldn't make the commitment to, you know, a 14 year lifespan of a dog. So my solution was just to keep getting puppies, <laughs> puppies to raise and train. Um, I also worked a lot with people with disabilities. I nannied uh, a child with Down syndrome. Um, as I was going through college, I worked as an independent living specialist for adults with developmental uh, and intellectual disabilities. Um, I worked in a group home for people who needed assisted living. Um, so I've been training service dogs since I was 13. And at the same time, I've been very interested in working with people who are disabled. So those two things kind of just came together. And that's what I'm my career about. That is amazing. It is nice. Um, I mean, I think that a lot of us who find our passion early in life, you know, it definitely gives you that drive for your education and your career. Even though people may or may not be know this, but dog trainers don't make millions, um, you know, so we don't choose this career because we want to be a millionaire. I mean, we definitely want to be able to feed ourselves and our families and, and pay our rent, but we don't go into it. So when you have a passion that starts so young, um, I know this for myself too, um, you almost can't fight it because if yeah. you try to do something different, you would be unhappy and you couldn't figure out why. And you may have ended up with your own mental issues of, you know, being unhappy and having anxiety because you can't be what you want to be. So yeah. I think that's fantastic that you were able to listen to that sense in you, even as young as 13. Yeah. Um, so now tell me, I, I know this, but tell our listeners about your training on how you became a service dog trainer. Tell us that path. Yeah, so I definitely learned a lot just as I was growing up training um, service dogs. I ra raised four guide dog puppies for Guide Dogs of America. Those lasted about 18 months each. And then I raised two four canine companions. Um, and then I attended Bergen University of Canine Studies. Bonnie Bergen, the founder of Bergen University, um, she is credited as kind of creating the first service dog. She raised and trained and placed 
the first non-guide service dog in 1975. She was a huge part of getting the service dog language put into the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, and then in, I think it was 2001, she founded Bergen University of Canine Studies. Um, and that school focuses on creating more service dog trainers. Part of the education was, you know, actually training these dogs, taking them out. And then we did place one dog kind of as a class. We placed uh, her with a disabled child and went through all the boot camp training, everything. And while I was there, I trained uh, two more service dogs. And in case anybody doesn't know, um, Bergen University is in Santa Rosa, California. And I don't know if I, I think I've shared this with Casey before, but I may not have that. I went to Sonoma State University and I was, I graduated from high school in 93, went straight to um, Sonoma State. And so early on with, I'm a biology, zoology major, um, but, and then I lived in Napa. So early on in my career, I ran into Bonnie for conferences and oh, meetings. Nice. And uh, I did some classes at Santa Rosa City College when I was at Sonoma State. So I don't even remember all the ways I got involved, but it's kind of crazy that our worlds collide now, all these years later, when I was there, when she was developing this and before it wasn't a university yet at that time, it wasn't the full thing, but she was doing the training and training trainers. And um, I think I got connected maybe as a foster at some point. I never did it, but I started learning about her way back then. So such a yeah. small world, really, <laughs> you yeah. know, and then yeah. come back to, and then it's like, wait a minute. I know that where that is. So yeah. um, it is, It's and it's great that there's someone who actually focuses on that because there aren't a lot of places where you can fully focus on service dog training. So, yes. and, and what's kind of required to be a service dog? So I always say that the only thing that makes a service dog a service dog is the training. A lot of people come to me, you know, asking for a certification or asking for paperwork or for me to sign something or do they need something from their doctor, all that. Really, the only thing that it comes down to is how that dog is trained. So in order to qualify for a service dog, it's like a medication, you have to be disabled because the law that gives service dogs public access rights is the Americans with Disabilities Act. And so a disability is the only requirement from the human. The other requirement for the dog or the only requirement for the dog is the training. So there's two kind of parts that we're looking at in training. Number one, we need that dog to be trained to do specific tasks that mitigate your disability. And the dog has to be trained to be appropriate and not a threat and not a problem in public. What we're kind of looking for, the word that I always use is unobtrusive. That dog is just not causing problems for anyone. And yeah, that's what defines a service dog, unobtrusive helpmate. That's perfect. Now, because we know in the world that a lot of people are trying to call their dogs service dogs so they can get them on planes or in homes and stuff. And even though, yes, the training obviously is what makes them a service dog, to service, um, would you say certain service dog, they need a certain personality trait, at least a base to start with. So like, you know, because, you know, getting just any old dog as an agility trainer, not every dog's going to want to, is not going to be successful agility. Some of them 
won't even want to do it for fun or, you know, doing some other kinds of training. When we talk sports, you know, it's not made for cut for every single dog. Would you say, what would you say some characteristics that are good for people to look for in general? And we're not saying anything specific. So anybody who's listening is not going to take your word and go, I'm going to go find a dog with ABC and it's going to be a service dog because there is that training piece and your need piece. But what would be some characteristics that you, not all of them, but some of the big ones that you often look for in a dog to be a service dog? Yeah. I mean, I definitely think getting the right dog from the beginning is more than half the battle. Uh, I have a lot of people approach me after they've gotten a dog and those people, um, depending on the kind of help they had looking for the dog, they have less likelihood of success than the people who approach me before they get a dog and I help them through the process. We are looking for one of two things. Either we are looking for a puppy with a strong genetic background. Like we can, we know that their parents, we know that their siblings, we know that their grandparents, their great grandparents all have the same kind of drive that we're looking for in a service dog. If we don't want to go the puppy route, I would be looking for an adult dog um, who is already developed. You know, maybe we don't need to know the genetic background, but we can look at the dog in front of us and know that that dog is going to stay the way they are rather than go through a bunch of developmental periods and change. So I'm looking for a steady drive. I'm not looking for the kind of dog who really excels in things like agility. I don't want the dog who's the fastest agility runner. I don't want the dog who has top marks in hunting trials. Those are very, very driven dogs and they're very precise and they're very motivated, but they're too much for the kind of dog we're looking for for service dogs. We kind of have to look at what a service dog's job looks like most of the time. And most of the time we're asking the dog just to lay down and be quiet and be relaxed. So we're looking for a dog who has that kind of yeah, I'll just sit down. Everyone else can be doing other things. I'm just going to sit here and enjoy myself. But we also do need a dog with drive. What I love to see in a service dog candidate is that if I'm not interacting with them, if I'm not doing anything, they're relaxed, they're doing nothing. But as soon as I stand up and I say, let's do something, they're right next to me. They're ready, like, let's go. So I use a lot of Labradors because I find that they have that balance. They can be nice, calm, chill, relaxed dogs, but they also love to work. So Mm -hmm. when you ask them to work, they'll do it, but they're not over aroused, over excited in all these new environments. They need to have that kind of on off switch, you know, so that they can be off and, and, and not be stressed when they're resting. And not be stressed when they're working, you know, either like that, that on off switch is really natural. And, and, and that's a harder thing to train. That's a much easier thing to just get as a a characteristic. Exactly. Yeah. Um, And the on off switch, I think people have different ideas of what that looks like, depending on the background they have. Mm -hmm. For me, a dog with an off switch is one who can be in the middle of a very, very exciting, overstimulating environment and still have that off switch. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people define an off switch as the dog who goes home and sleeps on the couch. (laughs) And that's not exactly what I mean when I say off switch. I mean, 
Yeah. That's, I think we agree, but the, and I'm glad you clarified that because like, I would agree the same thing. I mean, even though my dogs, I don't have service dogs, but I have agility dogs, but I still like dogs with on off switches too, where when we're on an agility trial, they're like, just chill in their crate. They don't care The people are around. They know that the excitement's happening, but I put them in that ring or we start to, and they're like, yeah, game on. Yeah. And then as soon as their turn's done, they can go back to their crate or their spot, chew on a bone or, and be relaxed or whatever yeah. that they have yeah. to do. Exactly. Yeah. So I, yeah. we have the same idea of off switch, not the dog that you take to the park until they're so exhausted, they come home and pass out. Like that's not what we're talking about as the characteristic. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'll use my dogs as just a quick example. I um, had COVID a couple of years ago, you know, when it was first a thing. And so I was basically in bed for about two weeks and my dogs couldn't have cared less. We didn't get out. We didn't go for long walks. We just did quick little potty walks and stuff like that. And they were totally fine. They didn't care that we stayed indoors for two weeks straight. Um, but if I wanted to hike with them every day for five miles, they'd also love that. They're mm -hmm. kind of up for anything that I throw at them. Yeah. And that really makes, and that's where not, um, we've talked about this before, but I kind of say, you know, just like every human could not be an Olympic athlete, every human, every dog cannot be a service dog. It, it really yeah. requires a special amount of genetics and personality characteristics and you have to put the training in. So as a human, you could have all the genetics for being an Olympic swimmer, but if you never swam, you're not going to be an Olympic or you could swim every day and love swimming. But if you don't have those genetics there, you still won't be an Olympic athlete. So, yeah. you know, yeah, it really makes and sense. And I'll, I'll say just as a professional, you know, I have a lot of experience working with service dogs, but if I have a dog with the wrong temperament, not even I would be able to make, turn that dog into a service dog. It's not a lot of times. It's not a matter of training. It's a matter of getting the right dog. And I think something that is sad is a lot of people who are owner training, they don't know what they don't know. They don't know what they're looking for. And so they do get the wrong dog, but then they're stuck with this dog and they want to make this dog work because they've put all of this time and hours and training and, and connection and love too. Yeah. yeah. And blood, sweat, tears, money, <laughs> you know, they've put a lot into this dog. And if that dog isn't the right dog, it's very, very difficult at that point to make the decision that this dog shouldn't be a service dog. And I know you and I have talked about this, but as a service dog trainer, um, that's probably one of your most difficult conversations that you probably have to have. And, you know, of uh, this is not going to be what you had hoped and dreamed. And, and as a professional, at some point, you just have to be honest with them. So they're not just going along thinking, well, next year he'll be mature enough or next year he will be whatever. Um, yeah. A really hard decision. Yes, my first lesson with people, I consider myself like bluntly honest because I <laughs> want them to know exactly what they're getting into and what their likelihood of success is. Um, so yes, I do have to be the bearer of bad news. So yeah, exactly, sometimes. So now tell us, because some people might be going, oh, well, my dog, you know, I, um, I don't have a disability. I have no need necessarily for a service dog, but I really want a dog 
to be a therapy dog, or maybe I have some emotional stuff. Maybe I have a little anxiety. Can you, as the expert in service dogs, be able to share the difference between service dogs, therapy dogs, and then um, the emotional support animal too? Yeah. So first I'll talk about just the legal difference Mm -hmm. because that is what we're really talking about when we talk about these specific terms. These specific terms are defined legally. So legally, a service dog is defined by the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, And those are the dogs that are allowed to go into places dogs are not usually allowed to go. They can go to the grocery stores. They can go to um, Disneyland. They can go to restaurants with you. They can go anywhere that you're allowed to go, that dog can go. So what we already talked about having a disability and having the training, that's a service dog. That language is repeated in the American or Air Carrier Access Act. So flights are the same thing Um, and same thing with the Fair Housing Act. So you can have a service dog with you living in your home without paying extra pet fees, stuff like that. An emotional support animal is only defined in the Fair Housing Act. The only extra thing that an emotional support animal is allowed that a regular pet dog is not allowed is they are allowed to live with you in your home, even if your apartment has rules against pets or charges a pet fee, you know, that kind of thing. There, a disability still is required, uh, but that dog doesn't have to have training. That dog doesn't need to be a service dog. But you also can't take that dog into grocery stores, Disneyland, stuff like that. Finally, therapy dogs, those are separate. Those are dogs that are being trained to go into places and provide animal-assisted therapy. So rather than the dog being for you, the owner, that dog is going into hospitals or nursing homes or schools to provide pet therapy to different people. Those dogs are generally certified by independent organizations, things like Therapy Dogs International, uh, Love on a Leash, things like that. You can find a local club and you're basically just a volunteer to go into these places and use your dog as a therapy dog in these places. So yeah, those are the legal kind of definitions. However, something that I like to tell people is that even if your dog is not appropriate for public, even if your dog doesn't have that service dog temperament to go everywhere with you, you can still train that dog to do things for you at home. So legally, yes, that dog would be considered an emotional support animal, but that doesn't stop you from training tasks you want to train. If you want to train that dog to get your medication or provide deep pressure therapy or respond to panic attacks, you can do that at home. You just can't bring that dog out into public. And that's a lot easier to train. More dogs qualify for that level of training. And a lot of times that's enough for people. They just need help at home. And that brings up a really good next question is what are some of the types of behaviors and cues and things that you train service dogs. I know that there are hundreds of thousands. I mean, I know that this is like the sky's the limit. So we aren't going to touch everything, but some, there's some things that you train most service dogs to do to some degree or some variation of a similar behavior. So just maybe a couple that 
are the most common things that maybe people don't think about that you train um, service dogs to do? Yeah, so I primarily work with autistic adults, uh, people with PTSD or other psychiatric illnesses, um, and people with chronic illnesses. So the tasks that I most often train are medication retrievals. That might be just a regular, you know, 6 p.m. every day, take your medication retrieval. Sometimes for people with, let's say, ADHD, it can be difficult to actually follow through on getting that medication. You might see your phone alarm go off and just dismiss it without thinking about it, and then you forgot to take your medication. What we can train the dog to do is go and grab the medication, bring it straight to you, and it makes it a whole lot harder to just ignore that notification. We can also train it as an emergency response if someone is having a particularly bad panic attack or dissociative episode or is catatonic, that dog can go grab the medication when they are physically not able to. Out in public, I do a lot of guiding tasks for people with chronic illnesses. A lot of times they need that kind of forward momentum to keep them moving. So we teach the dog to move forward, left, right, halt, and then stop at things like curbs or trip hazards. Um, for autistic people, we use that a lot because it can be helpful to kind of turn off one of your senses. If there's sensory overload, just shut your eyes and let the dog kind of guide you where you're supposed to go. Same thing, do kind of a sensory deprivation hearing tasks. So someone can have very, very good insulated noise canceling headphones but still go out in public or stay at home and have things like alarms um, notified of, or they can, the dog can tell them if they drop their keys or if someone's calling their name, um, that kind of stuff. And then we do a lot of kind of emergency, go get help, you know, go find someone and bring them to me, pushing a button to call 911. We do a lot of like, get me out of here. I need to get out of this place. So go find a quiet spot or bring me uh, outside. I mean, those are the big ones that I train mm -hmm. often. I also <laughs> train, you know, retrievals, people who have a hard time bending over without getting dizzy. Um, deep pressure therapy for people who have blood pooling. You know, POTS is a very common disability where blood pooling in the legs causes a lot of problems. So they sit down, dog drapes over their legs until their heart rate um, and blood pressure come down. I mean, those are the most common that I work with. I just think um, I'm hoping that people that are listening really start to understand how detailed that is because you can make it sound really simple, but there's a lot of steps that go into all of those skills. It's not just, um, you know, one time you say, here's the medicine, bring that to me. There's one thing that when the person is alert, but those things that the dog also learns when the person isn't even able to ask for help, but the dog just knows they need help. And whether yeah. that's getting medication, deep pressure, you know, therapy, if it's, um, you know, calling 911, you know, it's a, it really makes a thinking dog and yeah. a, a, a very um, attentive thinking dog, but at the same time, not to the point where they're obsessive because that would be inappropriate for a, a service dog because they would cause more stress to their person if they're 
obsessively like waiting for them to have a seizure. You know, that's like not yes. helpful, you yeah. know? And so they're in, it's such a unique way of them being able to be helpful. Aside from all the loving things that probably most people know that, you know, dogs decrease our heart rate and our blood pressure and they make us happier. All those things that general people, you know, mostly know, but these are very specific skills that this dog has to be thinking and aware and something just came into my mind, but actually more aware and more attentive than some humans, um, yeah. where <laughs> these dogs, you know, these people could have a spouse or children or, or parents or others in their home that don't get it as quickly as the dog might get it, you know? Yes. And in a lot of ways, that's actually something that has come up because as we are workshopping, what is the best task and what is the best kind of protocol to have, especially in these emergency situations, I have in the past had this be helpful in more ways than just with the dog. Because what we're doing is we're specifically mapping out kind of a protocol to do when event X happens. So when this happens, first the dog does this, then the human does this, then the dog does this, whatever. And that has been, you know, we've kind of trained the humans at the same time, the family members, oh, this is what I should do to kind of mitigate this emergency event. Um, yeah, just workshopping through it really helps. And really, um, it probably in some cases, even if like you have a child, an adult child or a child that's living with their parents, or you have a spouse, it probably relieves the um, the human caretaker a lot too, because um, caretaking is very difficult. If you know, if you've never been a caretaker for someone, it is emotionally draining. It can be physically draining. It's mentally draining. I mean, it is hard to be in charge of somebody 24 seven and to make sure they're healthy, happy, and safe. Yeah. And this takes that piece off of that human to be able to be like, okay, well, the dog's in the bedroom at night with the person. I don't have to like be, I can sleep because the dog will come get me if there's a problem or yeah. I can go to the grocery store and leave person alone because the dog is almost like, you know, is there if there's a, an emergency. So not only does it help the person that has whatever the disability or whatever it is, but it helps their caretakers as well. Yes. And it, it can be, if you're someone that has to rely on human support, it can be incredibly empowering to start using a dog instead of a human, because it can be dehumanizing to rely on another human so deeply. Mm -hmm. And especially, you know, if it is a loved one, that does wear on your relationship over time. And so mm -hmm. to be able to use the dog over your loved one is it just gives people the independence and it gives them the power um, to live their lives. And it can make the difference between being able to stay overnight without a human companion it can make the difference between going out and staying in. And it can, I've seen it make the difference between living independently and having to live with human caretakers. Yeah. For sure. Um, now, something that I don't think people always understand, you know, is service dogs do require an, an, a, a different level of responsibility as a 
dog owner. So, you know, you have that, you know, everyday dog owner who can go to work all day, dog can stay home, you know, sleep, and then you come home from work and your dog's there. I have seen, and I've talked to other service dog trainers who sometimes this is a piece that people think they want a service dog, but they think they can kind of take it when they want and leave it when they want. And, and how that can be kind of difficult, difficult for the dog because they have a job and they're, you know, job is to take care of you. Talk about some of the responsibilities that the human has to realize that a service dog, that's if you go the not emotional sport, not therapy, but a true service dog who has been trained maybe for your epilepsy or panic attacks or something that you have chronically, even out in public or whatever, what that responsibility is. Like, what is it different having a service dog versus just your own pet dog? I think the way we define the relationship is important. Um, A lot of times when we're looking at our pet dogs, we kind of think of ourselves as their parent, you know, that pet parent, you know, that Mm -hmm. is my for a child, you know, some people yeah. will use that kind of, but we think of it as we are the adult and they are the child. With a service dog, that relationship is changed. That relationship becomes more like a business partnership or a even a marriage. You know, a lot of times I think of it more as that kind of equal footing. We are partners in life kind of relationship. And so this is where I think it is incredibly important. I think that force-free dog training is important with every dog, but I think it is hugely, hugely important when we're talking about service dogs because we are asking them to be on equal footing with us. We're asking them to make decisions when we're not conscious. We're asking them to go into environments that are not made for dogs and are not catered to dogs. So yeah, I think the main thing when you're looking at a service dog over a pet is just redefining the way that you define that relationship and learning to respect the dog and their own individual individuality um, and their happiness just mm-hmm. as much as you would a human partner. I remember I was at a dog training conference. This was years and years ago. And I had met in the conference, a woman who was a service dog trainer, but she also had her own, you know, service dog too. I remember her talking about because her service dog was, I, it was something that was like seizures, you know, it was something that could happen and she had it frequently. So she needed her dog with her basically kind of 24 seven because yeah. she never knew when it was going to come. And um, she talked about that people don't recognize like sometimes the disid, quote unquote disadvantages of having a service dog is because she said, when I'm in a hotel room, if I want to go down to the ice maker and my dog's with me, I have to bring my dog with me down to the ice maker mm-hmm. because if I leave him in the room, he's panicked because he doesn't know if I'm going to, you know, I, he doesn't know he's going, you're going to the ice maker, first of all. So he doesn't know you're going to be back in two minutes. But that worry that they have of like, I'm not getting you get to do my job because they have separated from me. You know, it wasn't like separation anxiety as we see it in everyday dogs, but it was like, my person is there. I'm supposed to make sure my person is safe. What happens if my person has that episode while they're out? And she said it was something that she educated her um, clients about that. You can't think of it as, I just don't feel like having a service dog today. <laughs> you know, like I just want to, I always want a regular dog today. So I just want to leave them home and, go do my business. But for now, some dogs are trained for not a specific skill. So they can be 
left. But what kind of responsibility do you see with your clients when they're at that extreme level? It's kind of like a guide dog that's for the blind, you know, where they are the eyes for that person. Yeah, I mean, it's a big difference depending on the disability. There are some people that have really good days and they can leave the dog behind on those mm-hmm. good days, or they might only need the dog in specific situations. Um, but for people who really do need that dog 24 seven, I do still try to get them to, it, it's hard because these dogs are on call 24 mm-hmm. seven. And so if their human is feeling great, they're feeling great and they can, you know, be dogs and they can go off and play and all of this. But on the days that their dogs aren't, that their humans aren't feeling great, that is a lot of stress. It's a lot of anxiety. It's a lot of work. When we're talking about natural medical alert, so when someone has a specific medical event and we start to notice that the dog is performing a certain behavior right before these medical events happen. I do like to capitalize on those things, but it's important to recognize that those, the motivation for a natural alert comes from anxiety. It comes from a place where the dog is concerned for their human and they feel anxious about it. And so that's why they're behaving in an abnormal way that we can identify and then turn into an alert. I think as far as the responsibility the people have, I think the biggest thing they can do to help their dog through that is listen to their dog. Um, I've had some people who see the alert and they say, okay, yeah, that's fine, but I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep trying. Mm -hmm. And their dog gets more and more and more insistent that, nope, you got to sit down. You got to stop. You got to stop. And that's just so anxiety inducing for that dog who all they want is for their human to feel better and they won't stop and sit down and when I start to get people to actively listen to their dog every time that dog is so relaxed and relieved like okay thank goodness you're listening to me you're stopping and that is kind of the reinforcement we give them in Mm -hmm. that moment is okay I hear you I'm gonna sit down this is gonna be fine um and yeah in those situations it's really not even about the food or whatever reward we give them it's okay now you feel better so I feel better yes yes so it is it's just one of those things I I don't think I think sometimes people just get in this fantasy land of what a service dog is because they see it on tv or they see one in town or I see you know finished train one and really breaking down all the pieces of it because there are lots of pieces to it whether as the trainer as the person who's trained getting their dog or training their dog or all of these parts and and really I love you know because I'm always telling my clients too that when I work with my dogs not service dogs but in other situations is you have to listen to your dog your dog's telling you they don't want you to touch them there they don't want to go there they don't want to do they don't want to be at the brewery they don't want to be at the winery they don't want to you know they don't want to be at this dog park they don't want to play with you and really learning that skill to just listen to your dog, which would be also transferred to listening to other humans. But, you know, that's a different topic. Um, <laughs> but yeah. it really is a big, important thing. So, um, well, before we sign off here, do you have anything you would like to share with the audience today about service dogs or training or anything like that? Um, I guess the biggest thing uh, that I would say to anyone 
who doesn't have a service dog but just sees them out in public is really just try to let people go about their lives. I think a lot of people are very well-meaning and they stop and they say, wow, your dog is so well-behaved. And they ask questions and they say, oh, I had a dog who was just like that, whatever. Um, It's a lot better just to let them go about their day. You can smile at the service dog and then just move on because I guarantee that person has already been stopped 10 times that day. And they're just trying to do their grocery shopping. They're just trying to go about their life. They have a very visible disability. And by having a service dog, they are kind of inviting people to talk to them about that dog. And a lot of times they don't want to. They just want to go about their day. Um, So anyone who doesn't have a service dog, as much as you appreciate service dogs and as much as you want to tell people how great their service dog is, A lot of times it's better just to smile and move on. For sure. And I love what you just said about, you know, a lot of these disabilities are invisible that these people have. So they've gone through their lives, nobody knowing maybe that they had it or even worse, people going, there's something wrong with that person, but they don't know what it is because they're not blind. They're not, they're not in a wheelchair. You know, they're not disabled where it's obvious, but maybe it is autism. Maybe it is social anxiety. Maybe it is PTSD. So on the outside, that person looks quote unquote normal. So they just blend into society, but then people just think they're kind of awkward or, you know, some other judgments that people will mm-hmm. make. And so, but they can, they kind of grew up knowing that, like they get grew up because my daughter has um, autism and my son has ADHD. So like I grew up with people kind of looking at my daughter when she would space out and, or my son bouncing off the walls, you know, like thinking I was his bad parent. Sometimes mm-hmm. I got over that quick. Cause I don't really care what people thought, but um, it's an invisible disability. And I have chronic Lyme. So when I wasn't feeling, I'm not feeling very well, you can't always tell. But if I needed a service dog because it was helping my life, I'm, it's, a, it's a hard commitment for a person who doesn't want the world to know something's wrong and they're very introverted and they're very shy about their disability, but they're making a choice that's best for their life. And it would be so great if the rest of the world would just respect that they need a dog for something. It's none of your business what they need it for. It's none of your business what tricks they do. And it's none of your business. Um, you know, I mean, and you can smile, but you don't have to sit and have a conversation with them. Um, sometimes it's appropriate. I have found that there are some times where that dog will bring out um, confidence in the person. And then that person might want to engage, but just like we have to listen to our dogs, you have to really quote unquote, listen to the person you're passing. And if you smile and say hi, and they just say hi and look down or look away, pay attention to that, that they're not engaging. If exactly. they, yeah. if they say hi and um, you say, Oh, what a beautiful dog. And they're like, thank you. And they stop or they start to show like, I want to engage then it's okay. And that might be a good thing for that person who's very introverted. Maybe they're working on social skills, but you have to be a very conscious, and unfortunately, most humans are not this way, but you have to be a very aware human where you can say, this person wants to engage with me right now, and that's great. Or this person does not want to engage with me right now, and that's great. And that goes along with any dog you see walking down the street, I think. Yeah. I mean, service yeah. dogs have the human component, but not every dog wants you to say hi to them either. So it kind of Absolutely. is a really good lesson of life. Yeah. 
Yeah, and no, I do have many clients who do enjoy the public interactions, you know, as long as they're respectful and, mm-hmm. you know, not just petting their dog without asking kind of thing. But yeah, those people are very obvious that they want to, that they are inviting that interaction. They will make eye contact back with you. They will say, what do, would you like to say hi? You know, I have um, some clients who pass out business cards with their dog's information or stickers. Um, and some have Instagram really like and TikTok accounts. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Some people really like that, and that's great. And you might run into some of those teams. Um, but a lot of teams just want to go about their life and, um, yeah, just be more empowered with their service dog. One last little thing I will add, too, that kind of goes off of that. Unless a dog is being very inappropriate, like barking or lunging or growling or using the toilet inappropriately, there is really no way for a random passerby to judge whether a dog is a real service dog or not. So I think a lot of this publicity we've gotten about fake service dogs, I think in a lot of ways that is good. Mm-hmm. However, it has come with a side effect of people judging teams mm-hmm. based off of little things. I have to spend a lot of time with my teams coaching them through the amount of pressure that they feel to have a perfect service dog. Mm-hmm. They feel like the dog has to be in a perfect heel, cannot break a down stay, cannot sniff something for two seconds on the ground. And that comes from a culture of judging mm-hmm. fake service dogs. And I think it's a lot better as long as that dog isn't actively harming anything just go ahead and assume that it's a real service dog and you might just not have all the information. For sure. For sure. And that's also anybody who is like, Oh, I'm just going to get that fake service dog. Cause I want to do it. You, you may think you're not causing any harm because you're like, well, it's just my dog and it's, I'm doing it. And if I get caught or I get in trouble, it's my responsibility. But what happens is that, you're now making people question all those others because I've been doing dog training long enough. I mean, like I told you, I knew Bonnie before the university was even around and before, and I used to do um, veterinary work with guide dogs for the blind and up in Northern California too. So a lot and clients who had um, service dogs in my puppy classes, like I've been in in this culture for a very long time. And um, in the nineties, we never had people questioning if a service dog was a service dog, there was like no question. Even yeah. in the early 2000s, there was no question. If a dog was in a store, um, you pretty much knew that they were a service dog. Like there was no, it, it didn't even occur to anybody to say, is that a service dog? And then within this last, maybe, you know, 10 years or so, um, maybe, maybe a little less, but um, we've really seen people taking, trying to take advantage of that service dog because they want to take their dog everywhere, taking care and, but then being fake. And then they do bite someone on a plane or, or bite someone. I, I had to deal with this um, at the ranch where my horse used to be is there was a woman who said her dog was a surface dog. She had had a previous surface dog that was legit. Perfect. You know, but then she didn't want to put the training into the new dog. She got, she got a dog that from a rescued puppy that was like a, she had a bottle raise. I mean, and it was, it was all just a disaster. And the dog was at the ranch and was barking at people biting, you know, people chasing horses, like totally out of control. Mm -hmm. And um, my 
friend who manages it, she said, well, I, I don't want to get in trouble by saying she's not. And so I had to print up the laws and I'm like, well, you're, this dog is violating like all of these things. So this is not a proper service dog. So you're okay. You're protected to say she can't bring that dog onto the ranch until this training is completed, but, um, or in this behavior stops. Um, but that was like when I first started to see like, people are just faking it. Like it baffled me, but now it's becoming, unfortunately, something more common, which then just hurts the people who really need dogs. You know, I think more common, like what you're describing, more common than people just downright faking it, like intentionally. I think what happens more often is what you're describing, where someone is disabled, they qualify for a service dog. They just don't know how much training is involved and what the standards are. And so they do not have a trained service dog or they do not have a well-trained service dog. And I think most of the fake service dogs we're seeing out there are that situation mm-hmm. uh, yeah. rather than someone who is not at all disabled, knows the law and decides to just fake it. Um, yeah. yeah. it's just Yeah. Well, there was a nuance. short period of time where I literally had people calling me to asked me to sign some, you know, form they got on the internet to yeah. say their dog. And those people were legitimately, I just want my dog to go on the plane and yeah. I don't want him to go underneath. Or yeah. I want to take my dog on this trip and I want him to be able to be in the hotel room or whatever. And I, and I think now that so much has been focused on it, I think you're right. We, we've kind yeah. of passed a lot of that now and now have gone to more like, I have a disability. I really want a service dog. I don't know how much time, money and um, you know, effort it takes. And then they just get themselves into trouble and then yeah. it becomes a big thing. So, yeah. um, yeah, well, hopefully all of these, this helps someone because I know you get lots of calls about, is my dog appropriate? And we've talked about this where we counsel and I get that calls a lot and I try to refer them to lots of different resources. This could be just another resource where somebody who might be thinking about getting a surface dog or wants to know a little bit more about surface dogs, they could hear this um, and just get some tips yeah. to know and get in the right direction if they wanted to. And we will definitely post your information now. Um, are you doing any virtual training or are you just doing in-person training? Yes, I work virtually with people. What I do virtually is first off, people who need help finding the right dog. That I can do virtually, no problem. I know some breeders. We can work together to find the right dog. Um, But I also help people just giving them the framework of these are the tasks you need. This is how you achieve that. Here are some local trainers who can help you with the nitty gritty stuff. Um, But I can provide just the bigger, larger framework virtually with people. And for local now, why don't you share everybody where you're because you're just relocating. So your business is starting all over. So we might as well give you a little plug to help you locally um so people could work with you hands-on where are you located now yes i just moved from california and now i am in windsor connecticut so so if you need a service dog trainer you can look up joyful paws we will have the link and we'll have the information on this podcast too but that way um if somebody is looking they can at least reach out to you maybe if they're having trouble finding a trainer or they need basics they have a, a place to start that they can yeah. do some work. So 
Great. Well, it was great to have you, Casey. I do miss having you in California, but I'm glad we got to connect this way. And I enjoy watching your TikToks and all of your things with your pups. And, um, and I hope that everybody enjoyed this podcast today. And thank you very much, Casey, for being here with us today. Yes, thank you. All right. We'll see you all next time.